And it's a great pleasure to welcome back to the program Philip Freeman, who is a professor of classics <coughs> at Luther College over in Iowa, and who was last year, a few years ago, talking about St. Patrick. And now we're talking about Julius Caesar. These are two very different people. They are. They're, 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 but they were both kidnapped by pirates, so they do have that in common. Yes, I remember in your book about about St. Patrick. We've got that incident. But St. Patrick didn't take the revenge on his kidnappers that Julius did. No, Patrick went back. He forgave them all, went back and became an evangelist. But uh, but Julius Caesar went back and uh, uh, crucified all of them, just like promised he would. Julius Caesar by then is about 25 years old, as I remember. Yes. He's on his way to the island of Woods to take a little extra sort of postgraduate work in oratory. Right, with, uh, uh, and, uh, with uh, a philosopher there on the island of Rhodes. It was, it was a traditional thing to do for a Roman nobleman. This philosopher was a great rhetorician as well. Yes. And I trained, among others, Cicero. Yes, oh, absolutely. So Julius wants to uh, improve his skills for pleadings in the Senate and elsewhere, I guess. Right, but he, uh, but he gets kidnapped, yeah. And what happens then? Well, he's uh, taken uh, uh, captive and uh, by these uh, uh, pirates who uh, had their, their lair uh, on the southern coast of modern Turkey. And he is uh, held there, uh, and they uh, say we're going to ask a ransom of 20 talents, which is a lot of money uh, for Caesar. And He says, 20 talents? I'm worth more than that. Absolutely. He says, I'm worth 50. <laughs> so, uh, and then, uh, what would that be in, in oh, our money? My goodness, it would be hundreds of thousands of dollars. No. It would just be a tremendous amount of money. And so he waits there for a few weeks uh, while they're uh, rounding up the money. And he uh, actually has a great time. He's a, a wonderful guest. Uh, the pirates uh, play athletic games with him and he jokes around and he reads his poetry to them. And all the while he says, you know, uh, when I get ransomed, I'm going to come back and crucify all of you. And they just laugh and have a good time. But then he is ransomed. He sails away, uh, and as soon as he gets to a Roman town, he uh, loads up the local militia in a few boats, sails back in, uh, captures all the pirates, and eventually he does crucify them all. It's an incredible story. Uh, it's told by Suetonius. Yes, uh, Suetonius and, and several others. Uh, yeah, who, so we're pretty sure it's true. Yeah, oh yeah, I mean, and it fits perfectly, the sort of uh, things that Caesar would do. What does, how does it fit the man? Well, he was uh, uh, fearless, he was uh, full of audacity, he was uh, full of spunk, uh, and he was uh, very forthright and honest. Uh, and he did get along very well with people when he uh, applied himself. He comes from the provinces, though, from a... He's not actually born to a patrician family, is he? Oh, he is. Yes, actually, he is. They're uh, true patricians. They're true patricians. He uh, is born in Rome, uh, but they're, they're patricians who are kind of like uh, Victorian families who've uh, lost the farm. Uh, and so he's, it's a very poor patrician family. He grew up in a slum uh, in um, called the Sabura, uh, which is not just north of the Colosseum and, mm -hmm. and near the, the modern Termini railway station, if anybody's been to Rome. It's still not a great place. But the family's in, and Julius is in a little bit of trouble because the then dominant figure uh, is, um, what's his name? Uh, there's Marius and Sulla. And Sulla, exactly. Sulla is the dictator for a while. Sulla is a dictator, yeah. Sulla represents um, what one might uh, call the conservative party. Absolutely. They want to maintain the, the old order, and they want to keep all the privileges of the patricians against the plebes and the equestrians and so on. Whereas he, uh, Julius, is related to Marius, who is a leader of the 
what should we call them? The progressive party. Well, the progressive, the populist party. The Absolutely. Populist yes. Even though Caesar, by birth, should have been uh, an ally of Sulla and part of the uh, aristocracy, uh, he, he, by choice, uh, was a populist. We've often had people from the aristocracy who have political ambitions and they pursue those ambitions by appealing to the to, to the mass. Absolutely, and that's exactly what Caesar did. He was uh, wonderful uh, at, 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 at appealing to the common people, and partially it's because he grew up with them. Uh, mm -hmm. He grew up in these slums, and he was around the bakers and the candlestick makers and the prostitutes, uh, and he knew all of these people. He knew the sorts of lives they lived, and they knew him, so he could relate to them like nobody else. So for a while, he's on the lamb because he's related to Marius, who has who's being pursued uh, by Sulla and uh, who was in danger of being killed. Right, and and uh, Caesar is uh, really just in his late teens. Uh, he's married uh, to, uh, um, uh, just married uh, to a, a daughter uh, whose father is a leading uh, member of the Populist Party. Sulla calls him in and he says, Caesar, young man, you've got to divorce this woman. Uh, and uh, of course, everybody expected him to do it, but Caesar looks him in the eye and he says, no. I'm not going to divorce her. Uh, he was only a lad of 16 or so at the time. Yeah, 16, 17 or so. Yeah, he was not very old at all. And so then he goes on the run because uh, Sulla is trying to kill him. How does he emerge? How does he first come to the attention of um, all those who are observing as sort of a special young fellow? Well, he was uh, a great soldier from the very beginning. Uh, he um, was extremely brave. He fought uh, in a battle uh, on the island of Lesbos at Mytilene. And he was right on the front lines, and he uh, led the troops over the walls. Uh, and uh, because of this, he was uh, awarded uh, um, what we call the civic crown, which was very rare and very special, like the Medal of Honor, really. is. is and at this point, he's only about 17 or 18. Well, at this point, yeah, he's probably in late teens, early 20s yeah. uh, at this point, yeah. And from there on, he's got a, a big rip on the Roman streets, so to speak. Right. He's a, a recognized soldier. He is a, a marvelous speaker. And this is in an age where being an orator is just tremendously important. And so he uh, takes on uh, different cases as a lawyer, mm -hmm. because a lawyer was an amateur job back then. And he loses most of the cases, but he makes a really good impression uh, on the people. Does he ever go up against Cicero in a trial? Not that I can remember uh, that he did. Cicero was the great player. Cicero, uh, Cicero was uh, the best, and Caesar was number two. Even Cicero said uh, Caesar was almost as good as him. Uh, we're about to pause for some commercials. After that, we're going to vault forward uh, to get to the point where he is, he has established himself as the dictator of Rome. Uh, this would be the year 44 BC. He was born uh, in 100 BC, as near as one. Right. So there's an argument, isn't there? Some say it's as early as 102 BC. Yeah, there's there's always arguments, but the the general consensus is 100 BC, which makes it very easy to remember. By the time he's 55 or 56, he has expanded the Roman Empire tremendously. Right. Essentially, taken in all of France and and Spain. Right. And a good deal of. Uh, 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 Africa, the Middle East, and so on. Right. And he, by now, is, has long been the leading man, and the uh, aristocracy are beginning to get rather nervous about him, rather resentful. We're going to listen to some of them talking about Caesar uh, in the days just before the assassination. Then we'll go back over earlier time again. But we want to come directly to uh, Shakespeare's representation of all of this. And the Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, is essentially about 
the assassination of Julius Caesar. This is a famous scene uh, of dialogue between Brutus and Cassius. Cassius is trying to stir Brutus up against Caesar. What means this shouting? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. Aye. Do you fear it? Then must I think you would not have it so. I would not, Cassius. Yet I love him well. But wherefore do you hold me here so long? What is it that you would impart to me? If it be aught toward the general good, set honor in one eye and death in the other, and I will look on both indifferently. For let the gods so speed me, as I love the name of honor more than I fear death. I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus, as well as I do know your outward favor. Well, honor is the subject of my story. I cannot tell what you and other men think of this life, but for my single self I had as lief not be, as lived to be in all such a thing as I myself. I was born free as Caesar. So were you. We both are fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. For once, upon a raw and gusty day, the troubled Tiber chafing with her shores, Caesar said to me, Durst thou, Cassius, now leap in with me into this angry flood and swim to yonder point? Upon the word, accoutred as I was, I plunged in and bade him follow. So indeed he did. The torrent roared, and we did buffet it with lusty sinews, throwing it aside and stemming it with hearts of controversy. But ere we could arrive, the point proposed, Caesar cried, Help me, Cassius, or I sink. I, as Aeneas, our great ancestor, did from the flames of Troy upon his shoulder the old Anchises bear, so from the waves of Tyre did I, the tired Caesar. And this man is now become a god, and Cassius is a wretched creature and must bend his body if Caesar carelessly but nod on him. He had a fever when he was in Spain, and when the fit was on him, I did mark how he did shake. Tis true, this god did shake. His coward lips did from their color fly, and that same eye whose bend off all the world did lose his luster. I did hear him groan. Aye, and that tongue of his that bade the Romans mark him and write his speeches in their books. Alas, it cried, give me some drink, Titinius. As a sick girl. Me, gods, it doth amaze me a man of such a feeble temper should so get the start of the majestic world and bear the palm alone. Another general shout. I do believe that these applauses are for some new honors that are heaped on Caesar. My man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. That does stir Brutus up, and we know, of course, this is leading to the plot, the successful plot, to assassinate Caesar. But this takes place in the year 44 BC. And this, thus, this is roughly when Caesar is 55 or thereabouts. So this is roughly 30 years later than the where Caesar was when we last talked about him. What happened during those intervening 30 years? Well, he conquered all of Gaul. He uh, became a dictator of Rome. Uh, he amassed a fortune. Uh, he uh, had an affair with Cleopatra. You know, my goodness, what didn't he do uh, in those 30 years? Well, how did he conquer all of Gaul? Well, 
it was it was tough. Uh, Gaul is is roughly modern France with a little bit of Belgium and Switzerland mm-hmm. and a few other things thrown in. Uh, he fought an eight-year war there, uh, and he did it um, honestly with a, a great deal of uh, brutality uh, and uh, an awful lot of um, skill and with a good deal of luck as well. You say, though, a great deal of brutality. When they took a town yeah. and uh, captured it, they would very often do a kind of local genocide, wouldn't they? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Caesar was actually better than most. Uh, a typical Roman general would surround a town and take it and then uh, would often kill everybody except the women and children who he would sell into slavery. Caesar uh, gave a town usually a chance to surrender. And if they did surrender peacefully, he um, would uh, take most of their money, uh, but then he would uh, impose a garrison, but then he would pretty much leave them alone. If they didn't surrender peacefully, then he would go in uh, and uh, use all of his siege engines and everything else to take the town. Then he would normally kill all the men and sell all the women and children into slavery. And he'd pocket all the uh, all the revenue from selling them into slavery. Oh, absolutely. That that's was, how he built his fortune. That was a general's privilege, uh, was to uh, take uh, all the money from the sale of slaves. Was he... They could study some of Caesar's campaigns in the... Uh, in the war academies of the world still. I served briefly uh, at the Naval War College, and as I sat in on some courses where the real mid-level naval officers were getting ready to become um, captains and and admirals, (laughs) rear admirals and so on, they dealt with some of his sea campaigns. Uh, What was so brilliant about Caesar as a military strategist? Well, he was innovative, uh, and he didn't always win his battles, to tell you the truth, uh, especially in his sea campaigns. He, he ended up losing mm-hmm. a couple of the early ones, but he was willing to learn, and he learned very fast. Uh, and he was um, um, really audacious uh, in, in on land uh, as well. Uh, he would try things that nobody else thought of. He would attack an army that, that outnumbered him uh, tremendously. Um, his main advantage was the, van- the advantage of, of, of all Romans is that he was very organized. He could take 20,000 men and defeat an army of 50,000 just because he had drilled them so hard and they obeyed his orders and they trusted him. Did they have some particular tactical style at the same time? They, uh, they fought. Uh, when they fought on land, they fought in a checkerboard sort of uh, pattern, which uh, was very different, it, but it gave them a lot of flexibility. What's a checkerboard pattern? Well, uh, a pattern where the, the, they would have spaces in between them. They would look, say, like the, uh, the black spaces on a checkerboard. Uh-huh. Uh, and so the, the, the different units, the different legions could uh, move around. But they, they would form up in square phalanxes. They would form up in square phalanxes where the, the Celts were just a big mob, you know, big line over there screaming and shouting and, and waving their swords. Uh, and, you know, Caesar, uh, Caesar and his troops would just very calmly march up to them. Uh, and, and because of their discipline, he, they, they usually won. The Celts, that's yet another campaign. He crosses... Uh, the English Channel, and he is the first, <clears throat> um, uh, the first general from the continent to invade England, right. to invade the British Isles. Right before Caesar, uh, the, the Romans uh, really didn't know that much about uh, Britain at all. Uh, some of them thought that it was just a myth, that it didn't even exist. But Caesar uh, launched a campaign uh, in Britain. Uh, it was a very quick sort of scouting campaign in 55 BC. Uh, but he was determined to be the first Roman general to go over there. 
Uh, and so he lands there, uh, and the British were Celts, just like they were uh, they were Celt in Gaul uh, as well. Uh, and the first thing Caesar does is he lands uh, beneath the cliffs of Dover and uh, gets an awful lot of his men killed uh, because he doesn't know uh, how he, he can't storm the cliffs of Dover. Uh, so he moves down the channel and um, then he uh, finally lands and uh, the British fall back. But then most of his fleet is destroyed by a storm. Uh, so he's only there for a few weeks, and he has a terribly difficult time. He was really lucky to get out That's alive. That's the first time, but he goes back another time. He goes back another time, and he gets uh, farther in, and he gets to the area of London uh, and north of there. And he does manage to, to defeat the British tribes, and they all promise to behave and send hostages and money, and, and most of them never do. And so then for the next 200 years or so, the British are the are a presence in England or in the British Isles and supposedly the dominating power. Right. Uh, it was uh, it was about a century after that that uh, Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, launched, launched the invasion of Britain, mm -hmm. uh, which lasted years. It took a long time to conquer Britain, and they never got up to Scotland. I mean, not, not permanently anyway. Uh, so uh, the British were, uh, they were a tough people. He must have had something else. Indeed, you say that he did. And something which a great general to have. Somehow what we handle with the... Uh, the code term charisma. He was able to win tremendous loyalty uh, from soldiers who sacrificed a great deal and who died in large numbers, but the survivors remained loyal to him. You think of Napoleon, who had the same effect. Oh, absolutely. And Napoleon was probably the greatest student of Julius Caesar. And he, you know, just thought Caesar was a genius. Uh, Caesar uh, had was was a great military leader because of several reasons. The first of which is that he shared the difficulties and the dangers with his men. He was there on the front lines. That's what always commends generals to. Uh, that, that that was the Patton effect in World War Two. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and also he um, uh, he he faced rebellion from his soldiers on several occasions. Uh, and he stood up to them and he said, you know, forget it, boys. Uh, you know, we're going to fight these Germans. We're going to cross to Britain. We're going to do this, that. Uh, and that's the way it is. We've got to talk about these Germans, the Teutonic tribes, who are a constant menace to Rome, ultimately a menace which became a reality. Uh, it started uh, in the second century B.C., really, uh, with a couple of tribes called the Cimbri and Teutones. They uh, invaded uh, into uh, Gaul and actually got all the way down into Italy before uh, Caesar's uh, uncle Marius defeated them. Uh, and they were a tremendous danger. If they had gotten to Rome, they could have wiped out Rome before it really got started. Later on, they did get to Rome. They did. Caesar managed to uh, establish uh, really the defenses that held them off for about 400 years. Yep. Until sort of the end of the Western Empire. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's when Rome, in essence, moves to Constantinople. Exactly, yes. But uh, that's not our... That's not our uh, task tonight. Tonight, uh, we're talking about this crucial figure in Roman history, and we're talking also about the time, the period in Roman history, when Rome transforms from a republic, which it had been for some five or six hundred years, into an imperium, into an empire. Right. Uh, Rome started very small, of course. It was just a little village on, on mm -hmm. seven hills uh, in the surrounding area uh, of Latium. But it grew slowly over the uh, over the years. Uh, it really, uh, it, well, eventually, of course, it took over most of uh, Italy, most of southern Italy. But it was the uh, the Second uh, Punic War against uh, Hannibal in the in the late 200s that really turned Rome from a regional republic into a larger empire. 
Uh, but it, uh, you know, politically, it was still a republica, uh, republica, race publica, a thing of yeah. the people. But they were hard guys. Cartagena de Lenda est. Who says that, and what does it mean? Oh, uh, that is the elder Cato, and it yeah. says Carthage must be destroyed. And once they finally got there, and Carthage is essentially... Um, what's it's modern Libya? Yeah, it's in it's in Tunisia. It's uh, or Tunisia rather. Yeah, yeah. you can uh, take a cruise ship and land in Tunis and and be in Carthage in about ten minutes. Yeah. What do you find there? Well, uh, not much. Uh, it's just they a, burned it to the ground. They did. They burned it to the ground. They tore down all the walls. The and salt they, they the earth. Sold, yeah, they sowed salt in the earth. Yeah. Yes. To make it impossible even for agriculture. Right. So you don't see any Carthaginian ruins, but you see a lot of uh, Roman ruins. They rebuilt it eventually. Um. I'm in the mood, suddenly I was quoting uh, Cato the Elder. Another great quote, though you can invert the word order in various ways, is omnes gallia in tres partes divisa est. Uh, anybody who's done elementary Latin learns that in one form or another. Yeah, that's, if you take uh, elementary Latin, take second year Latin, uh, you know, come over to Luther College and study, and that's how we will begin, second the first, year Latin. The first words of Caesar's Gallic War. Right, uh, all Gaul is divided into three parts, yes. Uh, was he a good writer, or did did the writing help to ad advance his career? We've got a presidential candidate at the moment who uh, has advanced his career by a book he wrote, which got a lot of attention, and which ultimately got him uh, into uh, the running for the, the United States Senate, and we know what happened from there on. Oh, absolutely. I, 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 if uh, Barack Obama was not inspired by Caesar, he should have been. Uh, yes, uh, Caesar uh, wrote... Uh, his commentary on the Gallic Wars and sent them back yearly. Uh, and they, then uh, they were published uh, as a collection. Uh, and he became very famous uh, because of it. And he, Caesar was a marvelous writer. He is a marvelous writer. Uh, he has a clarity uh, to him and a simplicity without being simplistic. Uh, for those out there who've struggled through Cicero, uh, you, you know, don't give up. Uh, try Caesar. Uh, you know, another great general who does a great book about a war comes to mind. Much, much later, one of our guys, namely Ulysses Grant. Absolutely. Didn't you think? Absolutely. I just I read Grant's memoirs just a few weeks ago. I was just amazed at how clear and straightforward. Mm -hmm. And he shares with Caesar, uh, Grant and Caesar, uh, neither one hides their failures. Uh, you know, he, he says, you know, I, I went into this battle. They both uh, say things like, I went into this battle. I did the wrong thing. I lost it. It was really dumb. I shouldn't have done it. There's a crucial moment in his life story, which is uh, designated by the great phrase crossing the Rubicon. Explain what that is. Well, uh, Caesar was uh, the governor of um, uh, northern Italy, and the boundary of northern Italy and Italy proper was the Rubicon River, which is... That's, that's what, what's known as Cisalpine Gaul. Right. And Cisalpine Gaul is northern Italy, the Po Valley, just because there's so many Gauls who live there. Right. Uh, but the southern boundary of it was the Rubicon River, which is this this little nothing of a river. Uh, that, uh, but once you cross that, uh, you enter Italy proper, and, and uh, no one was allowed to do that. So it was a declaration. No of one war. was allowed to do that, bringing an army with. Right. Him. No one was allowed to do that, bringing an army with him, uh, which is what Caesar did. So when he crossed the Rubicon. Uh, he, uh, it was, uh, that was it. What had been happening leading up to that? Uh, why was, this was his great move for power. 
Right. What had Roman politics been like for the prior 10 or 20 years? Well, during the time that Caesar uh, was in Gaul, uh, he was becoming very popular, becoming very rich. And uh, when the Gallic Wars were winding down, he asked the Senate if he could be consul again, because he'd been consul once before. Uh, that's that's the, uh, the executive of Rome you, for one-year terms was the way they used to do it. Right. And it would be two consuls rather than one. Exactly. It's it's like the president of Rome in just, yeah. just one-year terms. Caesar wanted to become consul again. Uh, the uh, Senate said, absolutely no way. In fact, Caesar, we want you to disband your army and come and stand trial for uh, all of uh, anything we can think up uh, to charge you with. They knew that he was the man on horseback, so to speak, and had tremendous power, and he could take take over if they let him cross with his army. Right. Uh, well, they, they feared that he would. Uh, they didn't think that he would actually do it. Uh, and when it looked like he might do it, they got the general Pompey, uh, who had a bunch of legions of his own, uh, and called him to Rome uh, to stand up against Caesar, just in case. But nobody really expected Caesar to cross the Rubicon just with one legion. Of course, earlier, Pompey had been involved with Caesar, and a third person it was Crassus, wasn't Crassus, it? Crassus, yes. And uh, what was considered a triumvirate. They were the three influentials. Right, exactly. They formed a, a populist uh, triumvirate, a, a three-man uh, council. Uh, and so they, they were allies. Uh, they weren't always friends. Uh, but actually, Caesar uh, gave his daughter Julia to, to mm -hmm. Pompey uh, as uh, as his wife. So uh, and uh, the younger Cato complains that you know what are we doing now? We're we're running Rome by exchanging women. Uh, you know this is crazy. Uh, but yes, uh, earlier uh, Caesar, uh, Crassus, and Pompey were allies. What's the date that he crosses the Rubicon? It's in 49. And, for, and what happens from there on? Well, uh, when he crosses the Rubicon, uh, he catches everybody off guard. Uh, he starts down the eastern coast uh, uh, of Italy, and he starts besieging towns. Uh, and, and he's very careful, though, not to uh, act like he did in Gaul. There's no slaughter. There's nothing like that. He wants to impress upon the people of Rome that he is simply trying to uh, exercise his rights. Uh, Pompey uh, is in Rome, uh, and uh, the first thing he does is says he says, we can't hold Italy. We cannot uh, do this. And so he says, uh, let's load up everybody and head to Greece. We'll regroup there, uh, and then we'll come back uh, to Italy uh, and, and get rid of Caesar then. So uh, Caesar uh, chases uh, Pompey all the way down to uh, Brindisi uh, on the heel uh, of Italy. But Caesar, uh, he doesn't catch him. Pompey's already gone. Uh, and then Caesar's left in charge of Italy, but it's kind of an empty victory. Uh, there's hardly anybody left of any importance in Italy. So he goes back to Rome. Uh, the Senate has a handful of people in it, uh, and he uh, is now leader of Rome. He's consul, but uh, there, there's nobody to rule. So he appoints more senators. He appoints more senators. Uh, he tries to lure uh, Cicero and, and several others back to the Senate House, but it doesn't really work. That's in what year, would you say? That's in 49. In 49. We have five years to go before his assassination. Right. This is utterly readable. I must say I've had great pleasure uh, reading it over the last few days. It is just published by Simon & Schuster. But I want to tell you about something else you can read even before you get to Philip Freeman's new book. If you go to our program blog, miltsfile.com, that's how you get there, simply miltsfile.com, uh, we've got the following, which has just gone up even within the last few minutes. To accompany our program tonight, I'm reading now, much more information about Julius Caesar can be found here at the Encyclopedia Britannica. That's in red. Uh, link on that, and you get the Encyclopedia Britannica article on Julius Caesar. 
there's also a fine portrait of Julius Caesar directly on our uh, program blog. Uh, and uh, beyond the reading of that Encyclopedia Britannica entry, waiting for you as a matter of great delight and of great informative value is the book by Philip Freeman, Julius Caesar. Um, we come to those last five years in Rome. Um, Rome has been emptied out when he finally gets there, but it doesn't remain empty. No, not at all. In fact, Caesar uh, takes off almost immediately. He's got a civil war to fight, which takes him another three years. Uh, he uh, goes after Pompey, basically. He goes after Pompey. He goes after, he first goes to Spain after some of Pompey's generals. Uh, he chases uh, Pompey over to Greece. He actually crosses the Adriatic in wintertime, which you just don't do. Uh, it, it's a, it's too stormy. Uh, but he eventually uh, gets to a, a town on the coast of Greece where Pompey is camped. Uh, and he uh, besieges Pompey, even though his army is smaller. He actually ends up building a wall around Pompey's camp. Uh, and uh, after uh, a while, uh, Pompey uh, was very conservative, very cautious, general. He was very good. And he ended up driving Caesar away so that Caesar had to withdraw and retreat uh, across uh, Greece uh, until he eventually faced Pompey again in a great battle. That's the Battle of Pharsalia. Uh, Pharsalia. Yeah. Yes. And there he loses. Pompey, uh, Pompey loses, yes. And uh, Pompey and his men were so confident that they were going to win, they spent the night before the battle divvying up all the different offices in Rome's, uh, in, in honors in, in Rome. Uh, but uh, Caesar, once again, he has a smaller force, but he uses them very well. And Pompey escapes uh, at this point and goes off to Egypt. He does. Uh, he uh, goes uh, first, uh, I think, uh, along the coast of Turkey, but he heads off to Egypt. Uh, he's confident that once he lands in Egypt, he can raise another army and, and fight Caesar again. Uh, but he steps onto the little boat in Alexandria to take him uh, to meet the, uh, the king uh, of Egypt, Ptolemy, uh, and he is immediately murdered. By whom? He's murdered by uh, one of his own soldiers, uh, who's an old veteran of his. But all, basically, he's murdered by uh, the Egyptian government, by Ptolemy and, and his ministers, who decide that he is now not uh, a good bet. And Caesar follows on and lands in Egypt and uh, takes up with Cleopatra. He does. Uh, Caesar lands in Alexandria. Uh, he is uh, brought the head of Pompey, uh, which has been preserved in the And jar. that doesn't quite please him. No, that is not at all the way that Caesar wanted to win. He wanted to forgive Pompey, sure. uh, but uh, he's very upset. And so he, uh, he he's landed actually in the middle of a civil war between uh, King Pompey uh, and his sister Cleopatra. Uh, he takes the side uh, of Cleopatra, uh, spends several months in Egypt, uh, has a, a grand liaison uh, with uh, the young queen, uh, but uh, and, and has a, some fierce battles in the streets of Alexandria. The young queen was officially married to her brother with whom she was engaged in a war. Right, that was traditional uh, in, in Egypt to do. Was it, were those consummated marriages, do you think? Well, I, I, in this case, uh, sometimes they were. Sometimes they were. Uh, in this case, I really doubt it. The young king was just a young teenager and Cleopatra. That's, that's so. King Ptolemy. King Ptolemy, yes. The 18th or thereabouts. Oh, goodness, I lose track. 14th, 15th, yeah. something, something like that, yes. But Caesar, in essence, wins the war for Cleopatra. He does, uh, with some uh, very modern techniques of urban warfare. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, is is Caesar is besieged. He and his troops are besieged in the palace compound of Alexandria. They fight street to street and house to house. And they, as as is usually the case, 
uh, he emerges victorious. Um, he does linger in Egypt long enough, or is this myth rather than reality, to conceive a child with Cleopatra? No, that's that is reality. Now, there's young some... Caesarian really was Caesar's son. Young Caesarian, what really was Caesar's son? Uh, some of the sources don't mention it, but really the best sources say, yeah, it's true. We're kind of embarrassed about it, but it's true. And so he uh, he, he uh, has uh, uh, an heir uh, in Egypt, uh, Caesarian, which means little Caesar. Yeah. And he heads back to Rome. And he heads back to Rome. He uh, goes north through uh, Judea. He uh, meets uh, young King Herod, or the, Herod's father at least, but probably meets Herod as well. Uh, he goes up uh, to Turkey. He fights a battle. Uh, which he wins very easily, and he sends back the uh, famous uh, quote to the Senate, uh, Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, mm -hmm. I conquered. Yeah. Then he heads back to Rome, uh, and that's when he really starts his program of legislation to try to clean things up. And that means what? What is he cleaning up? Well, uh, Rome uh, had been in civil war for decades, mm -hmm. uh, and so there was a lot of problems. There was uh, overpopulation in Rome. There was a lack of food. Uh, there was uh, a great abuses in the provinces. And so he uh, has this uh, crash program to reform Roman government. It's a sort of a new deal. Again, it, the focus is on the plain, on the common people. It very much. He's like FDR. Uh, yeah. And it's uh, like FDR's first hundred days. And Caesar launches into it with a passion. He, um, he, he, he gets land for the, the, the people of Rome, the poor people, because he wants to get them out of the city. They're just hanging around there, mm -hmm. causing trouble. He wants them out in the country, raising food and raising sons for the armies. Uh, he also imports, he wants to import professionals. So he has uh, special uh, dispensations uh, to bring in uh, skilled professionals from abroad uh, into Rome. Um, he uh, reforms the government, uh, of uh, governing of the provinces, uh, they had just been uh, a great place for abuse uh, of government. Now, what's his official position at this time? He is dictator. He's been elected dictator. Explain what dictator meant in the Roman tradition. A dictator was a recognized office in the Roman tradition in times of emergency. Uh, it, the Senate could appoint a dictator to sort things out. The ordinary term for dictator was a year only, wasn't it? Yes, or, or even shorter than that. Uh, and we have stories of, of like um, the, the Roman dictator Cincinnatus several centuries before who leaves his plow, comes and defeats the enemy, uh, lays down his dictatorship and goes back to his plow. Uh, Caesar is uh, uh, doesn't quite do that, uh, but he is uh, he, he can do basically anything he wants as dictator. Ultimately, <clears throat> the decision is made, or is it due to his demanding it that he be appointed quote dictator for life? Well, he, he doesn't demand it outright, but he probably is working behind He's the scenes. He's manipulating. He's sure. manipulating. Caesar is very good at manipulating politics. And so he is appointed dictator for life at this point, which is just a radical change uh, and, and spelled the end of the republic, really, for uh, in the eyes of many people. And that's what's stirring up Brutus and Cassius and Casca and all of those boys. which uh, And that's represented in the first act of Shakespeare's play. Absolutely. Does Shakespeare have it right? Yeah, basically. I mean, he adds some things in there, uh, like the scene where uh, Cassius rescues Caesar from drowning in the Tiber. That's yeah. not in the sources, but uh, uh, he, he does get it quite right. He bases it largely on the historian Plutarch, uh, and so uh, uh, Shakespeare is actually very good. Plutarch's lives um, are written how many years after the fact? 
oh, it's a good 200 years or so uh, after after Caesar. But he's drawing on a lot of earlier sources. We have Suetonius, who's writing at the end of the first century. Right, just a little bit before. The book titled The Twelve Caesars. Right, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, we have Suetonius, we have Plutarch, we have uh, a number of, of other sources. Uh, there are some that go back even to the time uh, of Caesar. And we have some inscriptions, uh, uh, coins, uh, that tell us something about Caesar, too. There's the famous Cleopatra coin as well, uh, based upon a bit, one of her visits to Rome. There are, yes, there are uh, There's some uh, uh, Cleopatra coins uh, out there. There's all sorts of material sources about Caesar. There's an argument as to whether she was a real beauty or whether her nose was too big. On the coin, it looks like a rather prominent nose. Absolutely, and that's something uh, Plutarch uh, and others say about her, that she was she was pretty, but she wasn't all that beautiful. But they say that once she looked at you and she started talking to, to you, you were absolutely captivated. In another Roman play by Shakespeare, Antony and Cleopatra, there's that wonderful um, Eno Barbus's soliloquy describing Cleopatra's barge, the barge she sat on like a burnished throne. Yes. So, uh, how does that go? Oh, remember? goodness, I wish I, I wish Burned I remember. on the waters or something. Yeah. 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 But, but it's all about the special captivating beauty and ethereal presence of the queen. Well, she was an amazing woman, and she's she's certainly worthy of a book of her own. Uh, she, well, she's had a few, I'm sure. She's had a few, yes. Uh, she knew seven languages. She was yeah. absolutely brilliant. Uh, she was the first of the of the of the Ptolemies of the Ptolemaic dynasty to bother to learn Egyptian. Uh, the rest of them just spoke Greek. Yeah, they were Greeks, of course. Right. This goes back to the death of Alexander the Great. Right. Where, uh, where they divided up the Alexandrian Empire. Exactly. And the Ptolemy family got Egypt. Right. Uh, his his uh, boyhood friend Ptolemy uh, got Egypt and then uh, kidnapped Alexander's body and brought it to Alexandria. Mm -hmm. yeah. And once again, our guest is Philip Freeman, who is professor of classics at Luther College in, what's the name of that lovely town? In, Decorah, uh, Iowa. Decorah, Iowa. Um, and uh, though your PhD is from Harvard and yes. you've taught earlier at major universities, but you've settled for the bucolic life of a of a small college. Yes, indeed. It's a lovely small town in the hills of Iowa. And there really are hills in, yeah. in eastern Iowa. Sounds lovely. Um, and we return to Rome, which is a bit um, um, racier a town than Decorah, Iowa, <laughs> I imagine, and a bit more conflicted. The conflict when Caesar first uh, emerges when he was a, a young lad was, as we said, between the conservatives and the populists, or the optimates and the populares, as, uh, as they would have call them. And that conflict is still there when he is dictator of Rome. Absolutely. The uh, the optimates, the uh, conservative element, did not go away. Uh, and Caesar didn't kill them, uh, surprisingly. Uh, Sulla, uh, when uh, he took power several years before, decades before, uh, he killed a lot of his political So when it comes enemies. to these fellows who plot and ultimately carry out the assassination of Caesar. Do they represent the optimates? Some of them do. Uh, you have people like uh, Brutus uh, and Cassius, uh, who are part of the optimates party. But it's more than that. Uh, you have uh, some of Caesar's friends, even, who were uh, members of the uh, populares, the populist party, who also uh, were plotting against Caesar. Why, basically? Well, uh, the, the, a lot of the people who uh, were members of the populares um, uh, uh, political uh, uh, group really felt 
angry at Caesar because they wanted Caesar to go in uh, and, and clean out and, and perhaps kill uh, all of the aristocracy and put them in positions of power, which he didn't do. Uh, Caesar was determined to have a peaceful resolution, and he wanted to bring people together of all different political parties. So he had a lot of the, the popularities mad at him. He had a lot of the traditional uh, uh, aristocracy, uh, like Brutus, uh, mad at him. Uh, he, um, he, he had a lot of people who were on his side, but he had a lot of enemies. The theme that uh, Shakespeare picks up in his account of it all is that they... Uh, still were loyal to the Republic and saw the Republic being uh, dominated away by Caesar. And this was a threat to the whole uh, classic Roman tradition. And the man had to be killed if that tradition was to be defended. Absolutely. It was, uh, it was uh, uh, Caesar it was perceived, and he was a tremendous threat uh, to uh, the Republic. I mean, he, he had overturned all of the traditions. He was now dictator for life. Uh, and Brutus, uh, people like Brutus, who were part of the old nobility, were deeply upset by this. Uh, Brutus's ancestor, 500 years before, had uh, killed the last uh, king of Rome, the last tyrant of yeah. Rome. Uh, and so people... That's, that would be Tarquin. Is that yeah, right? Tarquin, yes. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, people look to Brutus. A lot of people like Cassius look to Brutus, and they said, are you going to let this go on? Now, the accounts that we have, again, in the Shakespeare play, is drawn pretty directly from Plutarch, I suppose. Yes. And is it, as near as we can tell, an accurate rendering? Yes. It, it, there, there are other sources, but uh, the Shakespeare play seems to get it just about right. So let's come to that fateful day. It is March 15th, um, the year 44 BC. What happens? Well, uh, Caesar's wife uh, wakes up that morning and she says, I've had an awful dream. Uh, that you are in great danger. So she urges Caesar not to go to the Senate that day. But uh, Caesar, uh, being Caesar, uh, says, no, 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 please don't worry, I'm going to go. Uh, and so he walks to the Senate house. He's surrounded by uh, senators who he believes are his friends who are going to, he's dismissed his bodyguard. He says, I don't need a bodyguard. I've got all of these great senators to look out for me. Uh, he runs into a soothsayer on the streets of Rome who had earlier warned him to beware the Ides of March. That isn't Shakespeare's invention. It really no, happened. No, that really happened. Yeah. Uh, and this uh, soothsayer uh, met him again. Uh, now that the Ides of March has come, uh, Caesar says, hey, it's the Ides of March. I'm okay. And the soothsayer says, yes, they've, they've arrived, but they haven't passed yet. Uh, he walks into the Senate House. Uh, Mark Anthony is um, called aside. Uh, Mark Anthony is his loyal lieutenant. Uh, and so Caesar walks in. Uh, he's surrounded by all the senators. Uh, one of them approaches him, grabs him uh, by the robe. That's a signal for the rest. Uh, and they uh, stab him uh, with numerous uh, with, you know, numerous blows. Uh, and some of them, uh, they, they said later, uh, barely scratched him, uh, while others were, uh, were, were quite deep. And as he dies, well, as Brutus comes at him, Brutus, represented by Shakespeare, and I suppose there's considerable accuracy in this, Brutus represented as uh, a close friend and uh, really um, somebody long indulged by Caesar. And... As he sees Brutus lift his knife, he supposedly says, et tu, Brute, and you also, Brutus. Yes, yes he, uh, Brutus was uh, a young protege uh, of Caesar. Uh, Brutus was the daughter of uh, uh, a woman named Servilia that Caesar had had a long affair with. 
And some people had even thought that Brutus uh, might, might be his son. son. And, yeah. and it's possible. I, I don't think it's. I don't think he was, but it's possible at least. An interesting question is whether he said it to Brute or said it in Greek, which would have been Kaisu Technon. Exactly. They're, they're, our best sources uh, say that his final words were actually Kaisu Technon, which literally means even you, my child, yeah. which sounds even better than et tu uh, Brute. Yeah. But uh, I didn't put it in the book, but uh, I, I should have said that uh, some people think that Kaisu Technon, uh, it, it can also be a kind of curse. Uh, and Kaisu, it's more like uh, in your face kid. Uh, mm. Something like that. Uh, at least that's a possibility that some people uh, have raised. But, but I prefer to take it as, uh, as you know, even you, my child. But one way or the other, in a matter of a few minutes, he's slaughtered. Yes, he's dead. He dies there uh, on the floor of, the, of, of Pompey's theater beneath uh, a, a statue, a bust of, of his yeah. old uh, adversary and ally, Pompey. And what happens there after is a great fascination also. And of course, again, going back to the play, which is one of, uh, it's one of the easiest uh, plays of Shakespeare, easiest, that is, to enthuse and interest adolescents. They could all understand that one, even though some of the others are a bit uh, more difficult. But uh, it's superbly dramatic and very beautifully rendered. And it's the, the funeral orations are striking. Uh, Mark Antony uh, petitions the, uh, the killers to uh, be allowed to uh, speak at Caesar's funeral, and they do. Uh, Brutus yields on that, though Catus, in the Shakespearean version, uh, tells them that's a very bad idea. We're going to be staring up trouble. We don't know what will follow from all of that. But Brutus says, "No, it's fine because I'll speak after him. Uh, I'll speak before him." Uh, that's the way it's set up. We're going to hear portions of those two orations. Of course, they are supposedly occurring right after the assassination, and that's it. that's dramatic license taken by Shakespeare. But we do have from Plutarch, and do we have it from Suetonius as well, some evidence that, in fact, Brutus and um, and um, uh, Antony separately did give orations commemorating Caesar. Yes, uh, uh, Shakespeare really does get it right. He uh, compresses the time a bit, but uh, Brutus did give an oration, and then Anthony uh, gives an oration after him, yeah. So here's a Brutus, a portion of it at least, explaining uh, why it was right for them to kill Caesar. Countrymen and lovers, hear me for my cause and be silent that you may hear. Believe me for mine honor and have respect to mine honor that you may believe. Censure me in your wisdom and awake your senses that you may the better judge. If there be any in this assembly, any dear friend of Caesar's, to him I say that Brutus' love to Caesar was no less than his. If then that friend demand why Brutus rose against Caesar, this is my answer. Not that I loved Caesar less, but that I loved Rome more. Had you rather Caesar were living and die all slaves? than that Caesar were dead to live all free men? As Caesar loved me, I weep for him. As he was fortunate, I rejoice at it. 
As he was valiant, I honor him. But as he was ambitious, I slew him. There is tears for his love, joy for his fortune, honor for his valor, and death for his ambition. Who is here so base that would be a bondman? If any, speak. For him have I offended. Who is here so rude that would not be a Roman? If any, speak. For him have I offended. Who is here so vile that will not love his country? If any, speak. For him have I offended. I pause for a reply. Then none have I offended. I have done no more to Caesar than you shall do to Brutus. The question of his death is enrolled in the Capitol. His glory not extenuated wherein he was worthy, nor his offenses enforced for which he suffered death. Here comes his body. Mourned by Mark Antony, who though he had no hand in his death shall receive the benefit of his dying, a place in the Commonwealth, as which of you shall not? With this I depart, that as I slew my best lover for the good of Rome, I have the same dagger for myself when it shall please my country to need my death. Live, Brutus, live! Bring him with triumph home unto his hell! The statue with his ancestor! Let him be Caesar! Caesar's better part shall be crowned in Brutus! Bring him to his house with shouts and clubs! My countrymen! Good countrymen, let me depart alone, and for my sake stay here with Antony. Do grace to Caesar's corpse, and grace his speech tending to Caesar's glories, which Mark Antony, by our permission, is allowed to make. I do entreat you, not a man depart, save I alone, till Antony have spoke. That's delivered by a British actor, Stanley Wells, and beautifully done, I thought. Yes, definitely. And we come directly to uh, the Mark Antony oration. Not at the very beginning. Everyone knows that opening line. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come here to bury Caesar, not to praise him. But we're going forward uh, in that rather longer oration. And uh, here is Mark Antony stirring them up. If you have tears... Prepare to shed them now. You all do know this mantle. I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. It was on a summer's evening in his tent that day he overcame the Nervii. Look, in this place ran Cassius' dagger through. See what a rent the envious Casca made. Through this, the well-beloved Brutus stabbed. And, as he plucked his cursed steel away, mark how the blood of Caesar followed it. 
as rushing out of doors to be resolved if Brutus so unkindly knocked or no. For Brutus, as you know, was Caesar's angel. Judge, oh you gods, how dearly Caesar loved him. This was the most unkindest cut of all, for when the noble Caesar saw him stab, ingratitude more strong than traitor's arms quite vanquished him, then burst his mighty heart. And in his mantle, muffling up his face, even at the base of Pompey's statue, which all the while ran blood, great Caesar fell. Oh, what a fall was there, my countrymen. Then I and you and all of us fell down whilst bloody treason flourished over us. Oh, now you weep, and I perceive you feel the dint of pity. These are gracious drops. Kind souls, what weep you when you but behold our Caesar's vesture wounded? Look you here. Here is himself, marred as you see with traitors. Oh, piteous spectacle. Caesar. A woeful day. Traitors. Villains. Oh, well, bloody sight. We will be revenged. Yes. Revenge. Revenge. Stay, countrymen. Sweet friends, let me not stir you up to such a sudden flood of mutiny. They that have done this deed are honorable. What private griefs they have, alas, I know not that made them do it. They are wise and honorable and will, no doubt, with reasons, answer you. I come not, friends, to steal away your hearts. I am no orator as Brutus is, but as you know me all, a plain, blunt man that love my friend. And that they know full well that gave me public leave to speak of him, for I have neither writ, nor words, nor worth, action, nor utterance, nor the power of speech to stir men's blood. I only speak right on. I tell you that which you yourselves do know. Show you sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, poor, dumb mouths, and bid them speak for me. But were I Brutus, and Brutus Antony, there were an Antony would ruffle up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny. We'll burn the house of Brutus! Seek the conspiracy! Yet hear me, countrymen! Yet hear me speak! Why, friends, you go to do you know not what? Wherein hath Caesar thus deserved your loves? Alas, you know not. I must tell you then, you have forgot the will I told you of. Oh, <laughs> 
Here is the will, and under Caesar's seal, to every Roman citizen he gives, to every several man, 75 drachmas. Oh, most noble Caesar, we'll revenge his death! Oh, royal Caesar. Oh. Hear me with patience. Moreover, he hath left you all his walks, his private arbors and new-planted orchards on this side Tiber. He hath left them you and to your heirs forever. Common pleasures to walk abroad and recreate yourselves. Here was a Caesar. When comes such another? Never! Away! Never! Now let it work. Mischief thou art afoot. Take thou what course thou wilt. Great stuff. It is. What was the act? What's the what was the actual reaction in Rome? Directly after the assassination. Well, it was it was very much like Shakespeare has. Uh, uh, it, you know, some people thought Brutus was right, but most people really did side with Mark Anthony. Uh, there was um, uh, just an uproar uh, because the common people loved Caesar. The so the assassins uh, got out of town as quickly as they could. They did. Brutus and Cassius left town very quickly yeah. because uh, really most people were were uh, on Mark Anthony's side. And a new civil war begins. It did. Uh, and, and two years later, Brutus and Cassius are killed at Philippi. Uh, in, in Greece. In Greece, yes. And Mark Anthony and Octavian uh, take over. And uh, it was uh, just a, a bloody mess after that for another decade or so. Yeah. They, uh, Mark Antony uh, and uh, Octavian, now who becomes Augustus, the first emperor of Rome. Right. And Lepidus, right. a lesser military figure. And they do the proscriptions. They decide that they're going to have to kill a large number of people. Exactly. They go back to uh, and take a page from Sulla's book, and mm -hmm. they start killing their enemies, uh, mostly as a, well, to get rid of their enemies, but also to raise money, because once they were dead, they took all their estate and, and all of their wealth. Uh, and so it is another, uh, uh, goodness, another 12 years or so before, uh, before the whole Civil War ends. But in his very will, Caesar designated his grandnephew, Octavian, as his successor, and that went over. That was accepted. Right, that was. Even though Octavian was only, I think, 18 years yeah. old. Uh, yes, he uh, was accepted. Uh, Anthony was furious about it uh, because, uh, uh, you know, just like in Shakespeare's speech, mm -hmm. uh, Anthony's a master manipulator, and he wants to be Caesar's heir. He goes off and lingers with Cleopatra. He Egypt. goes off and lingers with Cleopatra. And there's another battle, and... Uh... That's the Battle of Actium, is it not? The Battle of Actium, the sea battle. yeah. Sea battle uh, off the coast of Greece. Everything seems to happen in Greece. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, Octavian uh, defeats Anthony and Cleopatra, and then Anthony and Cleopatra flee back to Alexandria and commit suicide, supposedly. And commit suicide, yes. <laughs> Quite a story. Yes. Quite indeed. a story. And we're late for an update on the news. Also, we're late for. Um, uh, listeners to join us in this conversation. We're opening the phone lines instantly, 591-7200. Philip Freeman's new book, Julius Caesar, from which we've been drawing tonight, although we can't do full justice to this 
fine volume in just a mere two-hour program. Uh, but that new book is now readily available. Simon & Schuster, the publishers. Uh, just one comment by one reader of the book, Anthony Everett, who wrote Augustus and Cicero, who says, Julius Caesar packed more into his life than most of history's great men, and Philip Freeman unpacks it all with skill and clarity. He takes the reader through every dizzying thrill and spill. The scholar will find much to admire in this book, but better still, the newcomer to ancient Rome will turn its pages with excitement, enlightenment, and sheer narrative suspense. The man's absolutely right. That's very, very kind of him. And he's, it's accurately said as well. We go directly to the phones. If you were trying to reach us, try again quickly. We've got one or two lines available. 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Thank you, Milt. Thank you for letting me on the show. I have a question for Mr. Freeman. Would it have been possible under Roman law at the time to have somehow removed Caesar from his position by some peaceful legal means other than assassination? No, actually, uh, once he was elected dictator, especially dictator for life, there there was no legal mechanism to get rid of him. He would have had to have resigned his dictatorship, which uh, previous dictators had, like Sulla uh, was elected dictator, and he uh, laid down the dictatorship after a while. But no, there was no way to get rid of Caesar legally. What about passive civil disobedience, the senators perhaps telling the populace, do not obey Caesar, he has gone over his legal authority, something along those lines. Well, sure, that could have worked uh, if they could have uh, convinced enough people and staged enough protest. Uh, Caesar might have listened. He was very responsive to the people. But he was quite popular with the people at the time. But he was, yes. Yeah, so, uh, that if was, not with the, arist with the aristocrats. Right, so it was unlikely to work. Yeah. yeah. Sir, we thank you for the call. And thank you. An interesting uh, query and a valuable one. Uh, back to the phones in just a moment. I love the uh, contingencies in history and counterfactuals always fascinate me. Suppose he hadn't gone to the Senate that day, or suppose somehow the plot had been foiled. Suppose Caesar had lived on. How different would our history have been? Well, it, it, really, it's very interesting. He was leaving for a, a Parthian campaign three days after the Ides mm -hmm. of March. Parthia was ancient Persia, uh, modern Iran. Uh, so uh, they had to kill Caesar on that day. It was their last chance. If uh, Once he got into the army, there was no way they could get to him. Uh, Caesar would have conquered uh, probably the Parthian Empire, been gone for years, gotten more powerful, more wealthy, uh, and I doubt they ever would have gotten rid of him after that. Well, how do you maintain your power? when you're a thousand miles away. Well, uh, Caesar uh, had a lot of lieutenants like uh, Mark Anthony mm -hmm. uh, there back in Rome. Uh, it's difficult, but uh, but he could have he, he could have done it, I think. So much hangs on individual uh, histories. You, you remember the great quotation from uh, Carlyle, uh, who says, uh, "The history of the world is but the biography of heroes." That's in his book on heroes and hero worship. His view of history, Churchill had essentially the same view, is that great historical actors uh, are the key to everything that happens from there on. Sure, uh, and it's it's a theory that's not all that popular nowadays, sort of the, the big man uh, theory of history, but I agree with him. I, I really do think it's the individuals very often that do make the difference uh, in history, and you can't uh, just say that, well, you know, social forces, economic forces would have uh, given us exactly the same result. You know, in some cases, yes, and some, no. Play it the other way with, um, suppose he was killed not at the age of 55 or thereabouts, 
But at the age of 18 or thereabouts, suppose Sulla had not forgiven him and really got angry at him and just had him wiped out. What would the world have been? Well, would we be here? Uh, probably. Uh, I think some other general probably would have uh, uh, taken over and uh, in the, in the Republic would have crumbled. Uh, it was just becoming too unwieldy to try to run an empire uh, like uh, they were running a small city. So uh, I think it, it. I think the Roman Empire would have developed, but it would have been a longer and bloodier struggle mm -hmm. and uh, it would probably wouldn't have turned out as well as it did. Here's an interesting email from a listener in the New York area who says, um, I once read on the dust jacket of some book or other that among its other effects, Caesar's conquest of Gaul had the result of delaying the Germanic conquest of Europe by four centuries. Would your guest agree that this is a reasonable assessment? Absolutely. Uh, Caesar held back uh, the Germans uh, until uh, the uh, early 5th century. Uh, so yeah, uh, Caesar, uh, I, I think the Germans were uh, would have spread into Gaul. So I think that's a, that's a, a really big contingency, uh, that if Caesar hadn't been there to conquer Gaul and to build the Roman frontier along the Rhine, there's a very good chance that the Germans would have moved into Gaul and eventually into Italy, uh, and nobody would be studying Latin. We'd be studying Gothic or something like that in school. We go back to the phones. 591-7200. You are on the air. Good evening. Oh, Dr. Rosenberg, thank you again for such an amazing program. I'm just wondering what influence the Jewish population had directly or indirectly at that time. The Jewish population. Well, there was a, a fair Jewish settlement in Rome itself by then, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Uh, and Caesar uh, had grown up uh, in the Sabura, the, 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 uh, the poor area of Rome, where there were a lot of Jews. Uh, and so Caesar almost certainly uh, had a lot of Jewish friends, a lot of Jewish colleagues. Uh, and uh, when Caesar was killed, uh, it was the Jewish community in Rome that was uh, among the most upset. Uh, because he had uh, granted uh, great rights to them uh, when he was uh, in the east on his way back from Egypt. Uh, so there were uh, uh, there was a large Jewish population in Rome, a huge Jewish population in Alexandria uh, at that time. And so they were among Caesar's biggest fans. Of course, the dispersion had begun, but uh, not until uh, some, how far ahead is it? Well, over 100 years later, do you get the destruction of the Second Temple? And um, is that under Titus, I guess? Yeah, Titus Vespasian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that's commemorated in uh, the Judea Captiva uh, uh, pan relief on one of the arches in the. In the Roman ruins. In the Roman Forum, yeah. When you go to see the Colosseum, just in Rome, across the street, yeah, the just Colosseum. go right across the Colosseum, and you yeah. can see uh, carrying the the giant menorah yeah. uh, out of the Temple of Jerusalem. Um, and Christianity, one might properly say, though it's born in uh, what is now Israel, really takes root in Rome. Oh, absolutely. Uh, which is uh, and becomes the Roman Church. And becomes eventually, after several centuries, the Roman Church. But uh, without the Roman Empire, you can make a very good argument that uh, Christianity would have remained a, a local cult uh, in Judea. Uh, it, it was the Roman Empire that gave Christianity the chance to expand. Uh, and so uh, just uh, what is it, 20 years or so after the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, Paul is writing his uh, famous epistle to the Romans. Uh, and so the, 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 yeah, Christianity uh, owes a tremendous, a tremendous debt to the Romans. We pause for the usual reasons in just a moment. We uh, have been processing the calls. Not everybody makes the cut. So there are now some lines available. If you've been trying to get through, move quickly and 
uh, give us your question or comment, and we you will probably get proper attention. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Uh, simple questions are always welcome, but beyond that, thoughts that you want to share are easily and equally welcome. Five nine one seven two double zero, and directly back to Philip Freeman, uh, whose book Julius Caesar has been the basis for our conversation tonight. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number. Most of your work until this book has been concerned with Gaelic culture, or uh, rather than Roman culture. Yeah, I, I uh, when I was at Harvard, I got a joint PhD in uh, classics and Celtic studies. So I've written uh, a book on Saint Patrick. I've written a book called The Philosopher and the Druids about the ancient Celts. Uh, but um, my my first love has always been classics and Roman history and Greek history. So uh, I, I do both, yeah. You've revealed to me that you're now working on a biography of Alexander the Great. Yes. Uh, it should be out hopefully in about three years, I think. Uh, I'm going to try to uh, – uh, there's a lot of very good biographies of Alexander out there, but I'm, I'm going to try to talk about um, Alexander's uh, – how, how uh, people in the East viewed him, how uh, – Persia and in, in, in Jewish tradition uh, and in Indian tradition, how they viewed Alexander. Iskander. Iskander. Among other Yes, names. absolutely. Of course, we, uh, Alexander shows up in this book, Julius Caesar, when Caesar's off as a young man in Spain. Right. Tell that story. There is a, uh, there's a temple of Hercules uh, on the Atlantic coast of Spain, and Caesar's uh, there working as an assistant governor. And he wanders in and he sees a, a, a statue of Alexander. And Caesar gets so depressed when he sees it because he realizes he, uh, he, he's in his early 30s. Uh, and Alexander, at the same age, had conquered most of the known world. Uh, and there's Caesar working as a provincial judge in Spain. Uh, and he, he, uh, he sees it as an inspiration to go on. It's interesting to note that uh, the name Caesar becomes the title of kings. Yes. Uh, in German, Kaiser. Uh, in Russian, Tsar, uh, they're taken directly from Caesar, yes. And in fact, the prob probably the proper pronunciation of the family name in Rome, as Romans spoke it, was not Caesar, but Kaiser. Exactly. His, his name in Latin would, would be Gaius Julius Caesar. Yeah. Yeah. There's that great continuing conflict about the hard and the soft sea. Yes, oh yeah. In reconstructing That's... Roman pronunciation. Absolutely, yes. Or Latin yeah. pronunciation. Five nine one seven two double zero. We go quickly back to the phones, and you are on the air. Good evening. Good evening. I'm thinking of the Lutheran minister uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who felt that Hitler represented such an evil that he felt justified in participating in the attempt to kill him. Now that's significant on at least two levels. First of all, uh, he was willing to supersede one of the big ten commandments in the interest of uh, ridding the world of an evil and mm -hmm. then secondly you have the apostle paul saying in romans 13 uh, the soldier doesn't bear the sword for no reason and he's telling the romans to be law-abiding citizens and it would be interesting to get the apostle paul and dietrich bonhoeffer together in the same room to discuss this issue so I wonder what your guests' thoughts would be on some comparisons among uh, Bonhoeffer and the Apostle Paul with respect to Julius Caesar. And one might also uh, ask how um, 
uh, how Luther would respond, since you teach at Luther College. Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful... And since he was an eminent German. Yeah, Bonhoeffer and Brutus are, is a really great parallel. Uh, and, and, and I'm not, you know, I, I wish I knew. And, and the Apostle Paul, too. Uh, the Apostle Paul never mentions Julius Caesar uh, directly, of course. But, I, you know, honestly, I don't know, uh, you know, what, what, they, what they would have, uh, how they would have said. It's worth remembering that uh, Paul may not mention Caesar, but uh, Jesus does. Oh, absolutely. Render unto Caesar. Caesar, sure. And he's talking about uh, Caesar's uh, heir Tiberius yes. there, yeah. Well, in that reply, Jesus is being extremely savvy verbally. He is uh, getting himself out of a trap on two different yeah. counts. Absolutely, yes. Thank you, sir. Excellent you. contribution. 5917200, the number. You are next on the air. Good evening. Hello. Yes. Yeah, it's a wonderful program again. I'm really curious as to, uh, this happened before Christ was born, how do we know all of this stuff? Was it written on animal skins or was it written on birch bark? And the second part of the question is, now, uh, Shakespeare didn't come along until, what, 1500s? And -hmm. were they reading directly from those original manuscripts or whatever? Well, uh, the the history of of, uh, Plutarch and and Suetonius and the rest uh, were recorded uh, largely on papyrus, these reeds uh, from Egypt. Uh, Eventually, uh, some of them were were recorded on animal skins. Uh, We have nothing original uh, from Plutarch or Suetonius or from anybody in the ancient world. We don't have the original writings of any of these. And so they were copied, and then those copies were copied. Uh, And eventually, uh, by the time of Caesar, uh, uh, sorry, by the time of Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare is drawing on sources uh, like Plutarch, uh, which preserve all of these uh, sources. So there's always the problem, you know, what was lost along the way? Were things miscopied? It's, a, it's always a question. But of course, there are many other historians, or there are a number of other historians who also deal with these matters. Absolutely. Apart from Plutarch and Suetonius. Yes, there's, there's a number of them, and some of them quite uh, close uh, to uh, the time of Caesar. Uh, how far... Who do you have in mind there? Um, Nicodemus of Damascus uh, was uh, writing at the time of Augustus. Uh, there were, uh, goodness, uh, Sallust uh, was actually mm-hmm. was a friend uh, of Caesar's, uh, and he wrote his uh, his uh, memoirs in retirement. Yeah. Five nine one seven two double zero is the number, and we'll go. Ch- and there is some room available on the board, so you still have time to join us if you are so inclined. And here is the next. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, am I on? Yes, sir. Oh, well, thank you. They didn't tell me you're coming. Anyway, I, I, if I pronounce it correctly, I was just curious to find out if you've read or are familiar with Khan Ilgulden's trilogy on Julius Caesar, and uh, what if you've read it, what you think of it. No, you know, I'm sorry, I, I haven't read that. I've uh, I've read a lot of books. I read Colleen McCullough's uh, wonderful series on, on uh, Sulla and Marius and Caesar, but no, I'm sorry, I haven't read the one you mentioned. Are you familiar with Connie Golden? If I pronounce right, he's a British author. No, I don't think I am. Well, he it's it's well worth looking into. He's also in the uh, written two thirds of or at least released G on Genghis Khan. Oh, okay. Uh, it, 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 the two styles he he takes his data and turns it into yeah. fascinating reading. I imagine in writing this book, you certainly had in mind great histories and great accounts of Caesar. There must be hundreds of them. There are. I mean, there are, there are a lot of uh, uh, very good histories, uh, Caesar, uh, that are out there. Uh, so you know, certainly don't have to rush out and buy mine. Uh, but uh, if, if somebody's really... But for a good read, 
You could rush out. Oh, sure, you could. I, I would recommend reading Plutarch's um, yeah. uh, version of Caesar. It's short. You can read it in an hour. Uh, it's very uh, uh, engaging. Uh, so that's what I would, uh, you know, run down to the library or look online. It's available online. And of course, Plutarch does what he calls parallel lives. He does. Who does he compare Caesar to? Uh, Alexander. To Alexander, <laughs> yeah. quite properly, yes. Yes. And what what does he have to say about well the, the two of them? It, it's he, funny he 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 doesn't that that part the actual comparison of the two uh, is missing. So uh -huh. we we only have a few uh, little bits and pieces. Uh, years ago, I had a great British historian um, whose name I'm blocking on now, who did the early work on Hitler, um, and then um, towards the end of his life, uh, did a Plutarchian volume on Hitler and Stalin. Oh. With Plutarch in mind, yeah. as a providing a method for the comparison of two great tyrants. Oh, sure. In, with regard to Roman history more broadly, what's really available? I don't mean merely what's printed, but what makes sense for the common reader? Oh, there's so many good books out there on Roman history. There's a, a book, uh, the title of the, the, the uh, authors, I can't remember, but it's uh, From Village to Empire, which is a, uh, a wonderful history uh, of Rome. Um, there, I would just go down to the local bookstore, look on the shelves. Uh, there are an awful lot of really good ones out there. It's a fascinating time period, uh, and it has so many parallels to America. So, um, uh, what parallels do you see? Well, uh, you have an empire that uh, that uh, rises uh, and uh, declines, and a lot of people, I think, would see uh, America on the decline, just like the British Empire was on the decline, uh, uh, you know, before us. So. Um, politics uh, there's nothing new under the sun so if you uh, are interested in obama and mccain and their um uh, different troubles uh read roman history and you'll see uh, a lot of similarities when it comes to the decline of rome uh, a great book in the western tradition is of course gibbon's decline and fall of the roman empire sure but he doesn't have rome uh, sort of finished until the fall of Constantinople. Exactly. In the 15th century. Right. And, and whenever we talk about the fall of Rome, we always have to keep in mind that it's only the western half that fell, and that wasn't the richest or the most populated. Uh, the, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, uh, did very well until the year 1453. Uh, they continued. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Rome survived. Until they fell to the Turks. Until they fell to the Turks, yes. So uh, Rome survived for a long time. We are just about out of time. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. My pleasure. Uh, the book by Philip Freeman that we have been drawing from is titled directly and simply Julius Caesar and is published by Simon & Schuster.